Hello, I'm Pastor Jerry Varnado, and glad that you've joined us for our Bible study today at Rick Bonfim Ministries. Just uh, appreciate you so much. So, uh, we want to uh, turn to the book of Acts today. I've, I've been doing a four-part series on Acts, so uh, my text today is actually Acts 19, first seven verses, but I need to read something from the first of Acts for all of that to make sense. So, if you'll turn to Acts 1... Uh, beginning at verse 4. Uh, it said, On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. <coughs> for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, a few days later, we pick up the reading in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost... Now, Pentecost was a feast, a big feast, in the Hebrew tradition. So, all Jews from all over the country, all over the world, really, were, uh, were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It said, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's our preparation now to our text in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 19, the first seven verses. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, where he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Now, God, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit that you would come and be our teacher uh, in this time together, that you would uh, enable me to preach with authority that's not my own, and you would give us all supernatural hearing to hear exactly what you would say to the church this day. Amen. Uh, back in 1988, uh, I'd been preaching for about uh, four or five years at that point. Uh, I left my law practice and gone into the ministry. And I, I was out at the mall, and I was browsing an old book sale. I used to have those out in the corridors. And, and uh, I just happened to notice this little book sitting over there. And you, you can't see it, but it, it's, it's the title on it's right here. And it says, Ye shall receive power. 
I recognize that as Acts 1 5. It's got a little cross on it, and down at the bottom it says, A pocketbook of power. So I said, Well, I'm always looking for some power. I think I'll pick that up and read it. And I did, and, and uh, I was delighted to find that it was published by the Upper Room, which is part of the United Methodist publishing system. And it was published in 1951. And uh, after I'd read through a little bit, I thought to myself, when, when I asked the lady, came on, she said, how much? I said, how much is the book? And uh, she said, oh, it's a little book. How about 50 cents? I said, that'll be fine. I paid her the 50 cents. But after I'd read about four pages of it, I, I thought to myself, that's the biggest little book <laughs> she's ever held in her hand. If she'd have read it and believed it instead of selling it, uh, she'd have been a whole lot richer than she would have been with just my 50 cents. As I continued reading, I got interested about the authors. It just gives their name. I did a little research, found out they were both Methodist preachers. And uh, they had, uh, one of them uh, became a bishop, in fact, later, and the other one left and was a seminary professor. So, uh, so anyway, it was quite a fine uh, for 50 cents. I just want to read something to you. Uh, from page 34 and 35 of this little book. It's talking about the text that I just read in Acts. Uh, Paul, uh, they write, No wonder that St. Paul asked the critical, the crucial question. A dozen would-be Christians were gathered together at Ephesus. To the Apostle Paul's discerning eye, something was lacking. Perhaps it was the absence of joy note in their singing, in their praying, we don't know what the signs were, but to the apostles' penetrating vision, something vital was lacking. He asked this historic question, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. The day of Pentecost had come. The marvelous promises had been fulfilled. The wonder ministry had begun. These disciples were still in the pre-Pentecostal days. They were behind the spiritual times. We did not so much as hear whether the Holy Ghost was given. I am deeply persuaded. At this point, they're quoting from John Jowett, who was a famous author and preacher that lived from 1864 to 1923. And here's their quote they include in their book. I am deeply persuaded that judged experimentally by our daily life and practice, much of the mental attitude and spiritual pose of the modern church is pre-Pentecostal. And that in this thin and immature relationship is to be found the secret of our common weariness and impotence. Piercing words and how true the bishop's words ring in today's church. Now, uh, even after the Pentecostal revivals and the charismatic renewal movement and all of that, many in the church today still claim that the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit were restricted to the first century, that they are not of this age, they are not for us. And this is not a modern phenomenon. Uh, John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, had to address this issue in his time. And uh, here he wrote, uh, listen to what he wrote in his journal, first Wednesday 
uh, August the 15th, 1750. He said, by reflecting on an odd book which I had read on this journey, The General Delusion of Christians with Regard to Prophecy, I was fully convinced of what I had long suspected, that the Montanists, who were the charismatics of their day, the Montanists in the 2nd and 3rd centuries were real scriptural Christians. And that the grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness was well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began even then to ridicule whatever gifts they had not themselves and to decry them all as either madness or imposture. Now, the Bishop of Gloucester uh, printed a tract against the Methodists, circulated it all over London, and, and, and said they were heretics, basically. And uh, John re responded by writing the good bishop a letter. Now, it's called a letter, but it takes up about 26 pages <laughs> in, in my volume of Wesley, uh, Wesley's works. I won't bother to read all that to you, but let me just read an excerpt from the letter. Yet I do not know that God hath anywhere precluded Himself from thus exerting His sovereign power from working miracles of any kind of degree in any age to the end of the world. I don't recollect any Scripture wherein we are taught that miracles were to be confined within the limits of either the apostolic or the Cyprianic age or for any period of time longer or shorter, even to the restitution of all things. I have not observed either in the Old Testament or the New any intimation at all of this kind. Now, St. Paul indeed once said concerning the two miraculous gifts of the Spirit, so I think that Texas usually understand whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. But he does not say either that these or any other miracle shall cease until faith and hope shall also cease till they shall all be swallowed up in the vision of God and love be all in all. So as I go through this, I don't know what denominational affiliation you have, but as I said, I am a Methodist preacher. That's just a label, and it's just a particular organization I'm I'm part of. But I want you to know that 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 this teaching is not restricted to Charismatics and Pentecostals. This is basic Methodism right out of the mouth of John Wesley, and it's the same you would find in most every denomination if you go back far enough uh, and and look at the founders. So to reject the work and ministry and power of the Holy Spirit is contrary to the Wesleyan tradition and I say to any other long-standing tradition in the church. So it's not just Pentecostal and charismatic. This is basic biblical theology. Now the question that Paul asks of these men is pertinent to every Christian. Every Christian. Now to be sure that none of us have to respond as they did I'm going to review with you today and celebrate Pentecost and just what it means. First, I think we should dispel the idea that some promote that these men that Paul ran into in, in Ephesus uh, had not received the Holy Spirit because they weren't yet Christians. They, they haven't, weren't really Christians yet. Well, it says in the text, since 
you believed. Now the Greek word that's translated believe there is pistuo. It's translated 233 times in the New Testament, believe, and just about every one of them is referring to saved people. When you look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, whoever believes in Him, the Word is pursued. The same Word. You cannot escape the reality that Luke intends for us to understand that these men he encountered on the road were indeed born again Christians who had eternal life. And the whole otherwise is to do violence to the Word. Well, how do we explain this? Well, probably they were converts under Apollos. If you will recall, uh, in, in Acts, Paul comes to Ephesus with Priscilla and, Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila. Then he leaves, and they stay there. Then Apollos comes in, and he starts preaching, and they hear about him. And the text says he knew about, taught about Jesus accurately, but he did not know about Pentecost. You know, they didn't have text messaging and radio and TV and all. The Word hadn't got around. He hadn't heard about, about Pentecost. But he had heard other things about Jesus, and he preached it. Now, now he, he leaves, and Paul comes back to Ephesus behind him, and he finds these believers. And most likely they were converted under a policy they didn't know uh, about the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 3 and 4, then Paul asks them, uh, then what baptism were you baptized with? And, and they said, John's baptism. And you can recall, it, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that, that John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people try to say that John's account of the gospel in John, the book of John, uh, that their account, his account of Pentecost is contrary to the account they're given in Acts. So there's different ways that we can understand uh, what happened at Pentecost. But, but let me, as a matter of fact, John 20, 22 says, Jesus breathed on them and, and, and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We talked about that text, I think, in the last sermon I did, or may, maybe the one before that. But, you know, that text, I, re I recall back in, in the late 80s that I think that text was even a text for the day of Pentecost in the New Common Lectionary. Uh, but now listen to what John writes elsewhere in John 7.39. If you hope you got your Bibles with you, and just, just turn with me to there. I, I'd love for you to see this because this argument is still around. Well, I can't find it now. Let me see. I thought I had it marked. Well, I, I don't need the text. In John, John 7, 39 and John 16, 57, John simply talks about the fact uh, that he had to go to heaven before they were going to realize the promise. Uh, in, in John 16, 5 and 7, he said, it's, it's for your good that I go away. Well, until I go away, the Counselor, the Paraclete, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit is not going to come. But when I return to heaven, then I'll send him to you. So, in John's teaching, the Holy Spirit would not be given. That is, in the sense of Pentecost, would not be given until Jesus returned to the Father. 
But if you'll read through the whole book of John, when we get to the close of the book of John, Jesus is still on the earth. He hadn't gone back to heaven yet. Now, in other words, John gives no account of Pentecost. But he does give an account of disciples receiving the Holy Spirit into themselves uh, in some sense. Now, Pentecost <coughs> and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are the fulfillment of two prophecies, or two promises uh, given by God that appear in three Old Testament texts. And uh, I think I need to look at these uh, with you today for you to fully understand the point that I, that I want to make. First is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Uh, just listen to the text. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, so we're talking about a sovereign work of God within the heart and within the mind. And it describes the inward work of grace that results in intimacy and fellowship with God. Now let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Beginning at verse 24, God says through the prophet, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. See, that's that's New Testament, isn't it? The new baptism in water. I'll sprinkle new water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, then I will I will put my spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now Ezekiel is basically says the same thing as Jeremiah, uh, but it makes explicit, you see, what Jeremiah implies. This new heart this cleansing and this purifying that makes intimate fellowship with God uh, possible uh, is the result of God sending His Spirit into our lives, into us. And then the Spirit changes our disposition. Rather than having a disposition of rebellion against God, our general disposition is to follow God and to obey Him. And then He also gives us power to do the obeying, which was what was wrong with the Old Covenant. God told us what to do. We just couldn't do it. We needed His power in us to do it. Now, <clears throat> this is what I call staying power. It's power to hang in there when things are hard and to be the kind and character of a person God's desired. But you know what? Which one of those do you think Peter quoted on, Pente on the day of Pentecost? After a crowd got together and heard all the noise, 
they came out and says, what mean, what do these things mean? And remember, Peter stood up and said, oh, it said there were some scoffers that thought they were drunk. They were, they were so wild. And so, uh, so Peter stood up and said, these men aren't drunk as you suppose. But this is what was prophesied by Jeremiah? No. By Ezekiel? No. He says by Joel. And he quotes Joel 2, 28 and 29. It says, And after it I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now note the Spirit came upon them rather than in them. Jesus had already breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So apparently what happened at Pentecost is something other than that. It incurred the power of God being manifest through God's people to fulfill the calling of God, which is to reconcile the entire world to God in Jesus Christ. For the power of Pentecost is not staying power, it's going power. And I don't think a lot of the church is going. And maybe that's why we don't see the power that much. Now, I don't want to be too literal with within and upon, but it seems to me that this explains something of the phenomena that we're experiencing today. Christians having post-salvation experiences that dramatically changed their lives. It was true for me. I mean, I got, I was baptized and became a Christian when I was nine years old. But I was 40-something before I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Christians having post-salvation, that dramatically changed their lives. Now, I'm not talking about nominal Christians here, but sure enough, blood-bought Christians who are seeking to live holy lives in this world. The Holy Spirit is in them and working some level of holiness in their lives and motivating them to some degree of obedience. But they've not yet moved into ministry. They've not yet experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in that area of their lives. As a matter of fact, I grew up thinking the ministry is what ministers do. We hire them to do it in the church, right? Well, that's wrong. And we tried to address that in the denomination I'm in. We used to call the person who was appointed to serve the church a minister, but we changed that to pastor. Because we won't understand that the ministry is given to all people. Every member in ministry is the goal. Now, both of these, the internal and the external work, are the work of one and the same Holy Spirit that we receive when we become Christians. But the work is manifest in two distinctive ways. Interior change that moves us to obey God that I call stay in power. And then as we choose to move in obedience and ask for the empowerment of service, the Holy Spirit begins to manifest His presence in ways that empower and assist us in the ministry of the church. This is what I call going power. Now, in the Western church, we have preached the forgiveness of sins without equal emphasis 
on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But we must understand that forgiveness is the issue in justification or becoming a Christian. But in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessary because Lordship and baptism go together. If you want the Lordship, baptism of the Holy Spirit, you've got to receive Jesus as Lord of your life. You've got to commit to Him to be the Lord of your life. You think about the power of the Holy Spirit. God's not going to pour that on somebody who's not is not acting like a Christian, not behaving like a Christian, not seeking to do the work of God. <coughs> now, how and when those works of grace are accomplished in us depends upon our seeking and our surrender to God. Salvation, the interior work, is totally the gift of God. All you got to do is repent and believe. But the second one is empowerment for ministry. And it is a privilege that comes when we accept the responsibility of true discipleship. Whatever one might experience with God when they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the essence of that baptism is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In John fourteen sixteen, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The testimony of baptism, uh, my own personal baptism, I thought I would share with you today. I, as I said, I was converted at nine, and then about age 36, 37, uh, I had a life-changing experience and, and recommitted my life to God. And I, then I fell in with a bunch of uh, uh, Holy Spirit-seeking Methodists. Uh, and uh, I went up to Coldcrest Christian Renewal Center, which was then uh, only as a private ministry, but the director was a Methodist preacher. And another Methodist preacher was uh, uh, preaching that night. His name was Mark Rutland. And uh, he preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now what he said, what, the way he put it, I'll never forget how he put it, at the end of his sermon, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out keys. And he said, now I bet all of you have got a key ring like this. This is the key to the car. Key to the house. Key to my office. A key to the safe deposit box. A key to my boat. A key to my RV. Now the point is, the key to everything. He said, now if you want to be, Jesus be Lord of your life, you gotta give him all the keys. You can't hold any of them back. You gotta give everything you have, everything you hope to be, everything that you are, you gotta give that to the Lord. You can't hold anything back, or He's not Lord. Either He's Lord at all, or He's not Lord at all. Well, I was accustomed to going to the, uh, the altar in those days. That's how God got hold of me, and every time I went, I expressed, it doesn't matter to me what the, what the altar call was, I went. And uh, I had been to several revivals that Mark Rutland had preached, and I'd always gone to the altar. We'd gotten to know each other, kind of, and I came up to the altar, and he said, uh, 
what do you want now, counselor? He called me counselor because at that time I was still a lawyer. And uh, he said, uh, what, what do you want this time, counselor? And he said, I want what you're preaching about. He said, are you prepared to give God all the keys? He said, I said, he can have it. I've made a mess of my life. If he wants whatever's left of it, he can have it. And he prayed for me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Bells did not go off. I did not speak in tongues that day. But I want to tell you something. When I left that altar, I knew that I had committed myself to a course of action from which I could not retreat. I realized that I had put myself in the hands of the living God, a decision from which I could never return. I was sold out, all in. John Wesley, the primary founder of Methodism, there were others involved, but he was the primary and the main leader. At the close of his life, he wrote this in one of his journals. I do not fear that a people called Methodist will ever cease to exist as a sect, either in England or in America. But I do fear they would come to exist only as a sect having the form of religion, but not the power. Having the form of religion, but not the power. That's the way I had been from nine years old until that day at Cove Crest. Even after I got renewed in the Holy Spirit, I was going to church. I'd been going to church for over a year. I was going to prayer meetings at night, doing everything. But that was it. And I've begun to think to myself, is this all there is to Christianity? Within two weeks after I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, my home church asked me to speak on laity Sunday and give my testimony, which I did. Somebody that wasn't in our church heard it. The next Sunday I was asked to go to another church. And from that, I started speaking about two Sundays a month. And then I went to a full gospel businessmen's fellowship meeting. They called me up and asked me to give my uh, testimony of receiving the Holy Spirit, which I did. After that, I started getting evident, uh, in, invitations to preach at, uh, at, uh, at full gospel meetings I, I, all over North and South Georgia, in Alabama, in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Florida. I mean, I was preaching somewhere. Uh, two sun, uh, two days a week, and uh, not two days a week, two days a month. And it was out of that that I began to sense a call to ministry. And it was about that time, as a matter of fact, that I met Rick Bonfield, and it was in '88, '89, and we began uh, then to do some ministry together. I, or I shouldn't say that he let me go with him <laughs> to some revivals he was preaching. And even to give my testimony occasion. And boy, did we have a good time. We saw the power of God moving in our lives and the lives of people around us. Well, I just want to ask you a personal question. How about you? If the Apostle Paul could come back to earth right now and spend some time with you, would he have to ask you the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit, when you believe? 
Do you lack the power to really live the Christian life? Having just enough religion to make you miserable? You don't have enough religion to know the law, but no power to obey it? Has God revealed to you through this message that Jesus is your Savior, but not your Lord? You've accepted the salvation made available to you by shed blood, but you've never surrendered to Jesus as Lord, Master, and King, and asked Him to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You, you may not have ever even understood that that's a step we should take in our spiritual growth and development. Well, you know you can do it right now. There's no magic. You can get on your knees and surrender yourself wholly to God and ask Him to baptize you in the Holy Spirit right this minute. Remember what it says in Luke 11:13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? You see, God does not possess us. That's the way the devil works. God only comes to us with permission and cooperation from us. But if you ask in earnest, He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. There's nothing He wants to do more. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something God's holding from you. You've got to snatch out of your hand. He, just, he wants you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But before He can do that, He needs to know that you've given Him all the keys. The keys to everything in your life. Jesus died so we could have this great privilege and blessing. It's not something new that came with the Pentecostal or charismatic movements. It was part of the plan from the beginning. Jesus wasn't going to the cross or to the empty tomb. He was on the way to Pentecost. That was the culmination of His ministry on the planet. We cannot fulfill God's purpose for our lives, nor can we accomplish the mission of the church, which is to reconcile the whole world to God through Jesus Christ. We cannot possibly do that without the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the staying power and the going power. Would you ask Him right now? Pray with me. God, as there may be some out there now bowing before Your throne of grace, maybe not with a minister or anyone that they can ask to help them. You can help them, Lord. You, by Your Holy Spirit, can do what we can't even do. Not even. So, God, I ask You. I'm not. I can't lay my hands on them, but You can lay Your hands on them. And the ones that are earnestly asking, I pray now that You would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. There may be some who haven't even experienced justification. They may want to ask for the forgiveness of their sins. And at the same time, Lord, surrender to You as Lord of their lives. I ask You would fill them. Fill them with staying power. Anoint them with going power that they might be true disciples of Jesus in this world. In His holy name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Walk in His truth and walk in His power. That's what God desires for you. To every generation.
pleasure. He gives the joy 